holiness is not me trying to be something I'm not. Holiness is me dying to self and allowing Christ to be who He is in and through me. He's inviting us to a level of intimacy with Him in which our life actually reflects His life and His holiness. We can live in victory over the struggle because holy is who we are. Christ can set us free. How do you get right with God? When He awakens your conscience, what is it right now you're feeling? How do you do it? If we confess our sins, he's faithful. Sit with me. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Holiness is not a demand of God to be achieved. Holiness is the invitation of God to be enjoyed. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights above. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His heavenly hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. He set them in place forever and ever. He gave a decree that will never pass away. So praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding. You mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on the earth, young men and maidens, old men and children, let them all praise the name of the Lord for his name alone is exalted. His, his splendor is above the earth and the heavens, and he has raised up for his people a horn, the praise of all his saints, of Israel, the people close to his heart. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. Praise him in the assembly of the saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the people of Zion be glad in their king. For listen to this. For the Lord takes delight in his people. crowns the humble with salvation. Let the saints rejoice in this honor. Sing for joy on their beds. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples to bind their kings with betters and nobles with shackles of iron to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all the saints. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with tambourine and dancing. Praise him with the strings and flute. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. like if the last phrase in the book of Psalms was switched around instead of saying, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. What if it said, let everything that praises the Lord have breath? How many of you would be alive right now if your every breath was dependent on it being lifted in praise to God? I submit to you tonight that the God who is worshipped in this room is worthy of nothing less than every single breath. God. God desires and deserves the praise of the people called Hope Church. It's why God has called you during this month to search your hearts in 
honesty before him. To, to seek his face in submission to him. It's why he, God, has commanded you to come out of the pattern of this world. Be transformed into living sacrifices in this world. It's why he has spoken to you. Not Ken Witten. God has spoken to you about clarity of conscience. In the book of Mark, it's why he has said loud and clear to you from the beginning of this, this journey over the last few weeks. He, he has said, not Vince, but God has said, be holy as I am holy. So I'm, I'm coming here on this last night of this month-long emphasis. And I feel like I'm joining in a symphony that God has been singing over this church for the last few weeks. And I, I have prayed, oh, oh, oh God, what note do you want to sound on this night? And in this room, at this moment, And one text of scripture, as I've prayed for you, has resounded in my mind and my heart over and over and over again. And I tried to find a different text because this text is, is, is very familiar to many people. Maybe, maybe one of those dangerously over-familiar texts. But, uh, but I want to invite you to turn with me to it tonight because I believe it summarizes I believe it summarizes what God is saying to Hope Church about who he is, about who you are, and about what he is calling you to. So I'm not going to make you guess which, which verse it is. <laughs> if you've got a copy of God's Holy Word, let me invite you to open with me to Isaiah chapter 6. And while you're turning, let me express my... My gratitude to God for your pastor, Vance Fitman. I, I have such deep respect for this brother, his life, his family, his ministry. I have deep appreciation for his friendship to me, his, his example to me. I, I want to be like Vance Fitman when I grow up. You, you know you are a blessed church. You know you are a blessed church. And though this is, this is obviously, and this is my first time here, but I have heard much about you through, through Vance, and I have praised God for you, for who God has made you, made this church to be, for what God is using you to do in this city, in the western part of our country, and beyond in countries like Honduras and Zambia, Thailand, Wadi. So even though I'm just meeting you tonight personally for the first time, I want you to know I love this church. And I, I pray every week for this pastor and this, this church. And so what I want to do tonight is to take Isaiah 6, and I want to show you Four prayers that I'm praying for Hope Church, particularly during this next year. And my aim is that these prayers might be prayers that you pray for yourselves. And that God, in his mercy, might answer these prayers among you. Isaiah chapter 6, they're based completely on this chapter. So let's, let's hear the word of God together. And if you've... If you've read this passage before, you're familiar, just try to picture it like you've never heard it before. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations, just imagine, the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their, their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. As this month-long series comes to a point tonight, these are four prayers I'm praying for you. One, I pray that you at Hope Church, that you will have a high view of God. A high view of God. That you will fear God. This is where, this is where everything begins. And Psalmist, Psalm 11, 111, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we see all over Scripture the fear of God, and people say, preachers say, well, this is just, well, that means you have a reverence and respect for God. I don't know. When I look in the Bible and I see people who came into the presence of God, they look afraid to me. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and propose that when the Bible talks about fearing God, what it means is Fearing God. Now, Isaiah is not just having reverence and respect moment. He's terrified. People would say, well, well, this is just the Old Testament. I mean, the New Testament through Jesus, we don't have fear. John, Revelation chapter 1, gets a vision of Christ, and he falls down as though dead, he says. My prayer is that you will not be a people who are in any way casual with God. You'll have a high view of God. You'll see that our God reigns. In the year that King Uzziah died, king who had reigned for 52 years, for many people, this was the only king they'd known. We, we are used to a president for four, maybe eight years, but 52 years. And for most of his reign, had been a good king. Fell away at the end. This is the person that they had looked to as leader. And the Bible says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw, Isaiah saw the Lord. And he realizes, he realizes what we all know. Our God's reign knows no end. Throughout history, kings have come and kings have gone. Presidents have come and presidents have gone. Dictators have come, dictators have gone. One king remains, the center of history. And he is surrounded by angelic attendants, seraphim. They're, that name literally means burning ones. I love this. These are angels that are literally ablaze with the adoration of God. 
They surround his throne. They live, burn to worship God. We don't know how many there are. According to Isaiah, John tells us in Revelation chapter 5, myriads and myriads, thousands upon thousands of multitudes that can't be counted, all flaming with pure nuclear-powered praise to God. Get the, get the picture. When we gather together in this room tonight, we start singing, we are joined by, better yet, we are joining in a chorus that is already resounding in the heavens. And you know what? While you're sitting there in your seat, kind of quietly, they're still singing. They haven't stopped. They haven't moved on to something else. They're still singing. When you lay your head on your pillow tonight and you begin to fall asleep, they'll still be singing. When you wake up in the morning and you begin to rub your eyes, they'll still be singing. They're constantly singing. Which begs the question, what are they singing? What is their song selection? Holy, holy. Holy. It's, it's like they're grasping at the leash of language to try to find a word to express the wonder of the one who is before him. And the only word that just comes out, holy, holy, he's, he's different, he's other. He's totally other. And you think about, what does it mean for, for God to be holy? Obviously, we know that this means he is without error, that there is no sin in God, that there is nothing wrong in God. God has never had a wrong thought. He has never spoken a wrong word. He has never done a wrong deed. Everything is right in God. Even the things we least understand are right in God. He is without error. He never says, oh, I should have done that differently. Never. Never. He is perfect, period. But this picture of holiness doesn't just mean he's without error. Because there is a sense in which the same thing could be said, in a sense, of the angels who surround God. Because they, they have not sinned. And so they are sinless in that sense too. So we know for God to be holy means more than just he's without error. For him to be holy means that he is without equal. He says later in Isaiah 40, to whom then will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. There is no one like God. We sang it earlier. It's folly to try to compare God to someone, something. Because he is incomparable. Without equal. It's holiness. Terrifying. His sovereignty total. The whole earth is full of his glory. I love this. All the earth, a continual explosion of the glory of God. So I'm running. I, I get off the plane today. I had a couple of hours this afternoon, so I run along the road here, and I'm, I'm listening to music, and song comes on just about the holiness of God. I'm looking at the mountains and, and this pink-orange hue that's coming over the sky as the sun is setting and people are driving by, and I just got my hands up, just singing as I'm running, because I'm, I'm, you, you put those mountains there. You've crafted them the way they are. You've, you're in control of every single tent and every one of those clouds, and it's all for your praise. The whole earth's full of your glory, everything. He's sovereign over all nature. There's not one speck in creation that is, that is not displaying the glory of God. You think about that, that same passage, Isaiah 40. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. By his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Oh. <laughs> How many stars are there in the sky? Like hundreds of billions of stars in our galaxy alone. Astrologers tell us our galaxy is one of millions such galaxies. Hundreds of billions of stars in all of them. And our God brings them out one by one and calls them each by name. Bob. <laughs> Mary. 
Z1469er. I, I don't know. I don't know what their names are, but our God does. Our God knows their names. He's sovereign over all nature, and he's sovereign over all nations. That's part of the point of the whole book of Isaiah. Hold your place here in Isaiah 6 and turn with me real quickly to Isaiah chapter 36. So there's a, there's a historical interlude in the middle of this book that I want you to, I want you to get the picture here. So uh, I'll set, set the stage. We're going to be in, in chapter 36, verse 18 in a second. So the Assyrians, the nation of Assyria, is on the assault, and they... They are taking over city after city after city. And they get to the point where they surround Jerusalem with 185,000 Assyrian troops. Okay, so just, just imagine, just imagine, okay, there's, there's one city left, and it's Vegas. <laughs> and, and, and there's 185,000 troops surrounding you. The Assyrian army ready to overtake, ready to pounce on the city of Jerusalem. And Hezekiah, the king, said, tell him, trust the Lord, trust the Lord. But you, you can just imagine the fear that's going on as you're surrounded by 185,000 troops on all sides. And so what happens is an Assyrian commander comes out from the 185,000 and starts to taunt the people in Jerusalem. Listen to what he says, verse, verse 18. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. And this Assyrian commander says, has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Oh, you don't say that. He should, he should not have said that. <laughs> Basically, he's saying, what, what God of yours can stop us? We're the Assyrians. Nobody can stop us. Well, let's go to chapter 37 and see what the Lord says in response. Chapter 37, verse 23, God speaks. And he says, whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord. And you have said, with my many chariots I have gone up the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of, Lebanon, recesses of Lebanon to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest height, its most fruitful forests. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined this long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass. That you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops blighted before it is grown. I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. That is old Testament trash talk. <laughs> when you listen, listen to what happened. You get down to verse 33. Verse 33, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, Behold, these were all dead bodies. 185,000 dead. And Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed as well he should and returned home and lived at Nineveh 
And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his God, and Dramalek and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. Mark this down. You don't mess with God. God says, Assyria, you're in, you're in my hands. All over this book. Babylon, you're in my hands. Egypt, Israel, Judah, you're in my hands. I'm king over all of you. Sovereign over every nation. This is good news, isn't it? Isn't it good to know that Kim Jong-un in North Korea is not sovereign overall? And Ahmadinejad in Iran is not sovereign overall? And neither is Barack Obama sovereign overall. Our God is sovereign overall. And he holds them. He holds them in the palm of his hands. He's sovereign over, over everything. we got to move on, but just real, real quickly. <laughs> real quickly. I can only imagine in a room this size that there are some people, some men, women, families, who are walking through some really challenging times. And, and things not gone the way you you envision them going. You find yourself in a valley. that Maybe you know how you got there. Maybe you have no idea how you got there. How this happened and you're confused. I, just, I want to encourage you tonight. Look, look up. He's never surprised. And, and he's in control. He's in control. And even when it's hard to see and trust, he's in control. And he's holy pray that in good times and bad times, on a day-by-day basis, you will have a high view of God. A high view of God. You make God make this a church that fears you. Fears you. Second, I pray that you will have a serious view of sin. A serious view of sin. So, so what was Isaiah's response to God back in chapter 6? It was not wow, it was woe. Woe is me, ruin upon me, destruction upon me. Oh, for this, this kind of proper view of ourselves before God, we may be tempted to think, well, isn't that overdoing it a bit? I mean, Isaiah's one of the good guys, right? Surely he's not that bad. I mean, I mean, we're... I mean, there's a lot of other things going on in, in Vegas that are a lot worse than, than this thing in my life. We have, we have no clue the depth of the seriousness of our sin before a holy God. We have no clue. You, you, you read the scripture. I was, I was reading recently in, in Genesis chapter 19. As God brings down judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot and his wife are leaving. And God says, don't look back. Just don't look back. And what, is, what does Lot's wife do? She turns around and looks back. And just like that, she's evaporated into salt. Gone because of a glance. All she was glance. So it was one, one little thing, right? Think about Leviticus chapter 10 where Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who have done all this, all this in leading among the worship of God's people. One time they honor, author, offer unauthorized fire before the Lord. And just like that, they're struck down dead. I think about Numbers chapter 15. When, when, when a guy on the Sabbath is caught picking up sticks. You read, you read this. A guy is caught picking up sticks on the Sabbath. So they bring him before God and they say, what shall we do? And God says, stone him. Stoned for picking up sticks. Second Samuel, Uzzah reaches out and touches the ark. He's trying to keep it from falling. He's just trying to help. He touches the ark and immediately struck down dead. You don't touch the ark. You say, well, that's just the God of the Old Testament. Well, then you get to Acts chapter 5 the beginning of the New Testament church, and a couple comes in, and during the offering of all times, during the offering, one then another, for their deception, struck down dead. That'll hurt your attendance next Sunday. People start dying in the offering. 
And we, we read these stories. Let's think about this. Let's, let's be honest. Don't we think, isn't that a little overly severe? I mean, stone for picking up sticks. So they, they lied. They lied. Who hasn't lied? I mean, they lied. And they struck down dead. And we think that that's overly severe because, and I'm with you, we think that's overly severe because we have a man-centered perspective of sin. So, so when we think, okay, somebody lies to me, I, I don't think they deserve to die. You, you, you do something to sin against me, I think it's in death. And this is where you realize the severity of sin is determined not by what, what we might do here or there. The severity of sin is determined by the one who sinned against. You sin against a rock, you're not very guilty. You sin against a man or woman, you're, you're guilty. You sin against an infinitely holy God, you are infinitely guilty. Infinitely. One sin. Think about one, one sin. One sin in Genesis 3. One sin. They ate a piece of fruit. One sin. And from that one sin, the Bible says, condemnation came to all men. Throughout all history. You think about it. Seven billion people in the world, in the world today, right now, not including everybody that's come before us in history. Seven billion people in the world. Condemnation has come to all of them because one sin. All the effects of sin in the world. I mean, you think about tsunamis and earthquakes and hurricanes and you think about war and rape and murder and all all the effects of sin we see in the world and all happened because of one sin and you and I in this room have committed thousands of them we realize the severity of a sin a sin against a holy God a sin don't think, well, that's just something small in my life. It's just a thought. Just a word I shouldn't have spoken. Just a desire I had. There's no just here when it comes to sin. You look in Scripture and in church history, you will see that God's people have ebbed and flowed between two extremes. There have been times where the people of God have been extremely sensitive to sin, jarred awake by the thought of displeasing God, fresh conviction on their hearts, falling on their knees and faces in confession and repentance. And there are other times where you see God's people asleep in sin, desensitized to its presence in their lives. I think that's where we find ourselves today. And I'm sure it's all the more challenging here, but it's challenging in Birmingham, Alabama. We are so desensitized to sin. We need God to, to wake us up. Cornelius Plantinga book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be said the awareness of sin, a deep awareness of disobedience and painful confession of it used to be our shadow. Christians hated sin. They feared it. They fled from it. They grieved over it. Some of our forefathers agonized over their sins. A man who lost his temper might wonder if he could still go to Holy Communion. A woman who for years envied her more attractive and intelligent sister might wonder if this sin threatened her very salvation. He continued, that shadow has dimmed. Nowadays, the accusation, you have sinned, is often said with a grin or with a tone that signals an inside joke. At one time, this accusation still had the power to jolt people. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, go and read the history of revivals again. Watch the individuals at the beginning. This is invariably the first thing that happens to them. They begin to see what a terrible, appalling thing sin is in the sight of God. They temporarily even forget the state of the church and forget their own anguish. It's the thought of sin in the sight of God. How terrible it must be. Never, never has there been a revival. But that some of the people, especially at the beginning, have had such visions of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin that they have scarcely known what to do with themselves. God jolts us in our day. Jolts us in our day to to be as Ezra falling before the Lord, saying, I'm disgraced to even lift up my head because of the sin I see in my life. 
May brokenness like that over sin be evident in our worship. People falling saying, God, I need your mercy over what we would classify. Little things, not big things when you see God for who he is. If brokenness like that, weeping over sin, if brokenness like that over sin does not have a place in our worship, then God will not have a place in our worship. Because where God is worship, that happens. So I pray that you have a serious view of sin in this city, that you hate, you hate the smallest sin in your life, that you run from it. God, give us a serious view of sin. Third, I pray that you will have a glorious view of grace. So the good news. Isaiah cries out, in depravity, the Lord responds in mercy. And he commands the seraph to take a coal from the altar, the place of sacrifice. He touches him and says, see, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, how is that possible? How can God, who's holy, say to Isaiah, a sinner, you're not guilty? How's that possible? We just said, God, God's holy, he's perfect, he's just, he's right. So how can he say to somebody who's a sinner, you're innocent? To somebody who's guilty, you're innocent. How, how, does, that, how does that happen? Like, it doesn't matter who you are, what, what political persuasion you might have, conservative, liberal, progressive, whatever, you, you have a sense of right and wrong, and you expect right to be praised and wrong to be condemned. And you expect God to do the same. And so how can he look at that which is wrong and say, right, and still be holy? This is the ultimate question of the Bible. Ultimate question of the Bible. And we realize when we're reading through Isaiah that this picture of, a, of an angel going and taking a live coal and touching it to Isaiah's lips is a picture of who he is. And the place of sacrifice is just a small glimpse of a bigger picture. Turn me over to Isaiah 53. You remember this chapter? Or maybe if you don't, if you've never heard this chapter, you got to hear this chapter. This picture of a God who goes to the place of sacrifice to atone for man's sinfulness, remove man's guilt. That's the picture God set up his people all, all the way back in the Old Testament for generations. Every year, every year they celebrated the Passover, the Day of Atonement, the Passover. They bring a lamb into their home, uh, let the kids play with the lamb, love the lamb, then slaughter the lamb. And put its, its blood over the doorposts as a, as a picture of the fact that Sacrifice had been made. Death had been doled out. The price, the penalty for sin had been paid. And you got the Day of Atonement. You got two offerings brought in. One is taken in and sacrificed. Its blood sprinkled over the mercy seat as a picture of, of payment for the people's sin. Death being doled out. And then this other, this other sacrifice. Take the goat, the scapegoat. And the priest would confess the sins of the people over the goat, put his hands on the goat, confess, and then they would send the goat away outside the camp, never to be seen again as a picture of, of symbolic here of God forgiving his people's sins, sending, sending his sins away. And so it's that same word that the Bible uses in Leviticus to talk about how that goat carries sins away that Isaiah picks up here in verse four. And he's talking here about Jesus and he says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What, what, is, what does this mean? Two things, two things here. One, 
Jesus, the servant who's being talked about here, will endure the penalty of sin. He will endure, bear the grief due sin, carry the sorrow of sin. He'll be wounded, crushed, chastised, stripes of sin borne on his back. All the physical pain and suffering we see in the cross is a picture of a spiritual reality. Jesus is enduring death, the penalty of sin. But there's something deeper here. He's not just enduring the penalty of sin. Follow this. Jesus, this passage is talking about how he'll not just endure the penalty of sin, but he will take the place of sinners. Now think about this. Don't don't miss this, because Isaiah brings us into this thing. You see how many times in these verses we just read, three verses, no less than ten times, he talks about us Surely he's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, spent by God afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. We, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus is not just taking the payment of sin upon himself. He's taking the payment due sinners upon himself. So, so follow why this is so important. Uh, so Vance mentioned, uh, written uh, a couple books, and one of those uh, books, the little orange book, got some uh, publicity in a variety of places, and one of those places was in our, 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 our city's newspaper. And so this, this guy from the newspaper writes an article, and he says in the article, while it's a common pulpit truism that God hates sin but loves the sinner, Platt argues that God hates sinners. And then the article just, just moves on. And it's a, it's a quote from the book, but people start emailing me. People from the church start emailing me, uh, Pastor, do you believe God hates sinners? And people in the city started emailing me not so nice things about what I'm preaching, this or that. And this is where I find myself in, find myself in one, of those, uh, one of those predicaments for quoting the Bible. <laughs> so, so does God hate sinners? Listen, you don't have to turn there. Listen to Psalm 5, 5 and 6. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Maybe I should have said abhor. Maybe that's... That's a better one. No, 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 no. You misquoted. God doesn't hate sinners. He abhors them and destroys them. You quote me on that, put that in the newspaper. You look at it 14 times in the first 50 Psalms alone. We see God's hatred of the sinner, his wrath on the liar over and over again. And people would say, well, that's just Old Testament. No, New Testament. In that, in that chapter where we have the most famous verse about God's love, John chapter 3, we, almost have one of the most, we also have one of the most neglected verses about God's wrath at the end of that chapter. So, is it true that God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner? Well, certainly in a sense, yes, but not completely. Think about it with me. Does, does God hate the sinner? And this is so key to understanding the cross, because God's holy hatred of sin, his holy wrath due sin, is not just for sin as if it were something outside of us. And when Jesus went to the cross, he was dying for lusting or lying or cheating or this or that. Sin is at the core of who we are. And God's holy wrath is due us. His holy anger is directed toward us. We have offended him. Not just sin as if it's something outside of us. You, you, right? We're just sitting. I have. We have sinned against God. And we deserve his holy wrath. So now we got the question in the Bible here. How can God... Love sinners who are due his wrath. You see the picture? We're sinners. All we like sheep have gone astray. All of us. All of us. We say, give my own way. There's teachers, preachers, self-help books today that will tell you to believe in yourself, trust in yourself, have confidence in yourself, be proud of yourself. They are fools. Don't buy it. You're a dumb sheep. You. You. Even the, the smartest, most successful person in this room. Dumb sheep turned to your way instead of God's way. And God is holy, possessing holy hatred towards sin and sinners. At the same time, God is loving towards sinners. So how, how, how can God show both wrath and love toward sinners? The 
question the Bible, answer the cross. Because at the cross, God shows the full extent of his wrath. Does God hate sin and sinners? Look at the verbs in this passage. The son was smitten, marred, despised, rejected, afflicted, wounded, crushed, with brutal stripes, afflicted, slaughtered, sheared. Does God hate sin and sinners? Yes. This was all done in our place. At the cross, God shows the full extent of his wrath. And at the same time, at the cross, God shows the full extent of his love because he does this in place of you and me. So does, does God hate sinners? Yes. Look at the cross. Does God love sinners? Yes. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. Oh, hear this tonight. Non-Christian friend who's here. Hear the greatest, most glorious news in all the world. You and your life, right where you're sitting, have sinned against a holy God. You've turned aside from his way to your own way. We've all done it. It looks different in different lives. And you stand, you sit right where you sit right now under the wrath of a holy God. But he, he has sent his son and he's poured out his wrath, the wrath to sin and sinners upon his son so that, that you, if you, will, if you will turn from your sin and yourself and trust in the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf tonight, at this moment in your heart to do that, you... Isaiah 43 says, God will remember your sins no more. He will say to you by trusting in Christ, see, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Oh. There's an old uh, old, uh, story about a guy over in England who bought uh, a really expensive Rolls-Royce car. And it was advertised as the car that would never, ever, 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 ever break down. And so he bought it at a hefty price. One day he's driving it in the country and it, and it breaks down. And so he calls up Rolls Royce and he says, hey, my, my, my car that's not supposed to break down is broken down. They said, well, we'll get somebody to do it right away. They, they put a mechanic on a helicopter. They fly the mechanic out to where he is. They fix the car on the spot. And then, then going, the guy drives on his way. Well, a couple weeks later, he's waiting for a bill to come, but the, the bill doesn't come. And he's thinking, I'm a man with means. I can cover this bill. So let me just, let me, Take care of this. Get this behind me. So he calls up Rolls Royce and he says, uh, "Hey, this happened. You sent a helicopter out. Like, I just want to pay for my bill, and so, so I can have this behind me." And the voice on the other line said, uh, on the other end of the phone, said, "Sir, we're sorry, but we have absolutely no record of anything ever having gone wrong with your car." To think that. Your life, no matter what your past is, your life, no matter what your present is, that when you trust in Christ, the God of the universe looks at your life and he says, I have absolutely no record of anything ever having gone wrong. glorious grace. Live in that. Rest in that. It would be futile at that point to try to earn the favor of God, wouldn't it? Holiness is not an attempt to earn the favor of God. Holiness is the overflow of the favor of God in your life. Which is why after that passage in 1 Peter 1, that you guys study the very beginning of this month, you see You see Peter say, you've been ransomed, redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. And he says, fear, I think I wrote down the quote. As he who called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. Conduct yourselves with fear, knowing that you were ransomed from futile ways, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So coming back to fear here, brothers, sisters in this room, fear, 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 living in a way that shows the blood of Christ is not precious to you. Fear living in a casual way with sin. Live with a glorious view of grace. And then flowing from that, okay, I'm bring it to a close here. I pray, I pray, Hope Church, that you will have, that you will have an urgent view of mission.
After all this, God speaks and says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And it just makes sense. Isaiah's not sitting back at this point saying, oh, somebody, I'm sure. He says, here I am. Here I am, send me. Mark this down. This gospel does not elicit mere intellectual adherence or casual acceptance or church attendance. This gospel elicits total abandonment. This king is worthy of so much more than just raising a hand and repeating a prayer. This king is worthy of absolute submission to his person and absolute surrender to his purpose. And that purpose is clear. Purpose in Isaiah's life here is proclamation. Go, say to this people. Go preach. Go speak, knowing that it won't be easy. They'll hear, they won't understand. They'll see, but they won't perceive. But God's purpose will be fulfilled. You look at the end there. We don't have time to dive into it, but the promise of a holy seed that remains at the end of this prophesied ruin. Now, here, here's the thing. I want you to see here the relationship between holiness and mission. So earlier this month, you learned you saw that holiness, and we just heard it a second ago, is not a divine demand to be achieved, but a divine invitation to be enjoyed. Right? That God has invited you to share in his holiness, to be holy as he is holy. Awesome thought. But now, now take it a step further and realize this invitation to holiness is not an invitation to sit on a sideline and avoid this world altogether. That is how we often define holiness, by what we avoid in this world. I'm holy because I don't do this or that. There's all kinds of things you could think of going to the city you don't do, so that makes you holy. No. At this, point, we're, we're, at this point, the church becomes the only organization in the world that defines success by what we don't do. But holiness is not complete isolation from the world. Holiness is gospel engagement in the world. God has not saved you, any one of you, to sideline you. He saved you to send you. There are no holy spectators. Only holy servants filled with the Spirit of Christ to proclaim the gospel of Christ wherever he leads, however he leads. Holiness is proclamation. Just like here in Isaiah. You turn the page of the New Testament. What did Jesus say to his disciples? The end of every gospel. Go and make disciples, he says in Matthew. Go and preach the good news to all creation, he says in Mark. Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in all nations, he says in Luke. And then in part two of Luke and Acts, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be witnesses. The whole purpose of a witness is to speak, right? People say, well, I witness by being a good person, by living a nice life. Well, there we go. There we go again, defining holiness by being nice and good. I hope that's a given. Like, let's be nice. Sure, sure, yes, yes, yes. Yes, be nice. But these disciples who went out proclaiming the gospel were martyred. That, that's the word for witness there, martyreo. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you'll be a witness. You'll be a martyreo. You'll be a martyr. They weren't martyred because they were nice. They weren't martyred. They didn't lose their lives because they were good people. They lost their lives because they were proclaiming a gospel. So let's, let's not sit back in a context where we have freedom to share the gospel and assume that we're just going to witness by being nice, good people. We, we, we witness when we speak, knowing it's not going to be easy. I mean, this is not easy for any of us, not, not, not one of us in this room. It's not easy. It's not going to be easy to engage your neighborhood with the gospel, to engage your workplace with the gospel, to engage this city with the gospel. God never promises that would be easy. To engage the nations with the gospel, we know it won't be easy. But feel, see the urgency here. That you would have an urgent, that we're praying that you have an urgent view of mission. There are people all around you in your life right now who are under the wrath of God. They're under the wrath of God. Do you realize this? Do we realize this? Under the wrath of God. We're surrounded by peoples. You guys know the nations. The number of people in the nations have never even heard the gospel. They're under the wrath of God and they've never even heard that there's a way out. 
so we go and we speak here. We go and we speak there. We go because we're holy. Because we're going to stop defining holiness. Hope Church, don't define holiness by retreating from battle in this world. Start defining holiness by engaging the front lines of this world with the gospel. Start seeing workplace, not just as a place to make money and be comfortable, but as a place to make disciples and exalt Christ. It's what happens when we stop thinking the default place for us to live is among those who've been reached with the gospel. You realize that at least two billion people are unreached. When I'm talking about two billion people, we're talking about people who were born and live and die and never even hear the gospel. They haven't heard. And they're in tough places. They're unreached because they're hard to reach. All the easy people groups are gone. The difficult ones are left. You don't get into those countries through a pastor or missionary visa. You don't go to Saudi Arabia and say, hey, I'm here to convert people to, to Christianity. I'm a missionary. You don't, you don't say that. You know how you get into Saudi Arabia? Through all kinds of fields of business. Leaders who travel periodically, who move there. You realize there's about 6 million Americans living abroad right now. Estimates are that about a million of them are evangelical Christians, so followers of Jesus. Do we realize what a missions force we can be in the world? So this is why, even when I say urgent view of mission, the last thing I want you to immediately think is, okay, I need to leave my work, my job, my skills, my education behind. No, ask the question, is there a way that your work, your job, your skills, your education can be used to make the gospel known among the neediest peoples in the world? I'm convinced that if we really want to reach all the peoples of the world, with the gospel, it's going to happen on the wings of men and women with jobs who do, don't automatically assume that we should teach or program computers or manage or do accounting or sales or practice medicine in America, but workers who default to the fact that there are people groups around the world that have never even heard the gospel, that maybe God has given us a job and skills that can be used to reach them. What if God has designed the globalization of today's marketplace for the spread of his gospel through the sending of his people as workers around the world for the glory of his name? What if we start to think like that? What if we start training our kids, parents, to think like that? Not to think they need to get an education so they can get a good job and be comfortable here like us, but to realize they can get an education and get a degree and get a job and skills that will enable them one day to move to Afghanistan working among unreached peoples. You say, that's dangerous. No, that's holiness. It's holiness. God's not calling Isaiah to comfort here. Tradition has it Isaiah was, was captured in prison and eventually sought in half. Here I am, send me, cost him his life. But ladies and gentlemen, it would prove worth it. That's the whole point. It's worth it. He is, that's where it starts. High view of God. He's worth it. He's, he's worth it. Close with this. C.T. Studd, a wealthy Englishman who sold all he had to take the gospel to the nations. Studd's family, various Christian workers, were brought in to try to talk him out of going overseas, but he went anyway, first to China, then to India. When he was old in age, he decided retirement was not an option for the Christian, so he went to Sudan, spent the rest of his life there where he died. His grave became the stepping stone for what became known as the worldwide evangelism. Evangelization crusade spread the gospel all across Africa, Asia, South America. He once wrote these words. Believing that further delay would be sinful. Some of God's insignificance and nobodies in particular, trusting in our omnipotent God, have decided on certain simple lines, according to the book of God, to make a definite attempt to render the evangelization of the world an accomplished fact. Too long we have been waiting for one another to begin. The time for waiting is past. The hour of God has struck. In God's holy name, let us arise and build. We will not build on the sand, but on the bedrock sayings of Christ. And the gates and minions of hell shall not prevail against us. Should such men as we fear before the whole world, I before the sleepy, lukewarm, faithless, namby-pamby Christian world, we will dare to trust our God. We will venture our all for him. We will live and we will die for him and we will do it with his joy unspeakable, singing aloud in our hearts. We will a thousand times sooner die trusting only in our God than live trusting in man. And when we come to this position, the battle is already won and the end of the glorious campaign in sight. We will have the real holiness of God, not the sickly stuff of talk and dainty words and pretty thoughts. We will have real holiness, one of daring faith and works for Jesus Christ. 
as I've prayed for you. That, that, that's my prayer for Hope Church. I pray that you will have a real holiness, one of daring faith and works for Jesus Christ. Daring faith and works that are driven by a high view of God, and a serious view of sin, and a glorious view of gospel grace, and an urgent view of mission that leads you to spend your every breath in this city and wherever God leads you, wherever he leads you, making his praise known among the peoples of the world.